1: Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello there history friends, you're listening to the latest episode of When Diplomacy Fails, the third episode to be precise of The Long War, which I'm very excited to cover, so thanks very much for joining us. As is my usual want, I have to start one of these episodes with some kind of plug or another, so I'm letting you know that this week, When Diplomacy Fails is brought to you by the Agora Podcast Network. You see, When Diplomacy Fails is an active member of the Agora Podcast Network, which means that I, like many other very good quality podcasts run by some very good-looking hosts, bring you some quality content on a regular basis. We are all independent, we all love what we do, and we all have an eye towards quality and well-researched pieces delivered to you for free, of course. But we're a community, and Agora is our marketplace, our marketplace of the mind, we like to call it. So, if you're interested, why not stop by to the Agora Podcast Network podcast, which basically contains our varied members talking about different things, often to each other, which will give you a great window into basically what Agora is all about, but also the different members in the Agora podcast feed. Through that, you can find some great podcasts, just like When Diplomacy Fails, and you will not regret it. So if you are interested, and you should be, check out AgoraPodcastNetwork.com or simply search Agora Podcast in any of your podcatchers and go from there. Alrighty, let's get into this, guys. Episode 3, let's do it. Welcome history friends, patrons all, to the third instalment of our examination of episode 30, The Long War. Last time we hopefully cleared things up a bit by focusing our attention through the lens of Lorraine. The Duchy of Lorraine, as we discovered, was a great lens through which we could better explain how Louis XIV of France attempted to force through the so-called Reunions, a policy of territorial aggrandizement done through intimidation, risk and the total manipulation of a local history, to pave the way towards bringing further pieces of land into the French sphere of influence. We saw last time that Louis was able to do this by essentially claiming a load of land in the name of his three bishoprics within the Duchy of Lorraine itself. Through such a policy, Louis found himself gradually able to add to his domains and increase his influence as well over the strategically vital duchy on his borders in spite of the opinions of the exiled Duke and his more loyal subjects, none of whom the French could coerce into their own service. This time, we do take our focus off Lorraine as a case study, and instead we bring the policy of peaceful reunions to a definite halt, when one power in particular, Spain, grew weary of the continued French expansion after France had expanded into one too many territories. Let's take you to this very troubled continent, then, in late 1680. the armies the councils and all the ingenuity of man would be but a feeble means of maintaining us on the throne if everyone believed he had the same right as us and did not revere a superior power of which our own power is a part louis the 14th explaining the importance of the divine right of kings to his son the dauphin The chambers of reunion had proved to be a cynically brilliant method through which Louis could bring about all the changes in peacetime that he had desired to acquire from the previous war. By August 1680, French forces had occupied all of Alsace save for Strasbourg, while through further acquisitions, the previously unconnected territories of French Comté and Alsace were joined together, further reinforcing French security along the Rhine. Louis was able to do this because he provided increasingly dubious claims on the different portions of land that he wished to subsume into the French sphere. Sometimes these portions of land were mere towns and their surrounding farmlands, sometimes they constituted strategically important and historically disputed corridors between different lands, such as that aforementioned strip of land between Alsace and French Comté, which was called for the record the County of mont and don't correct me because I'm not even sure if that's the right pronunciation, because pronouncing French is fun. As was to be expected, the larger and more important the lands Louis sought to incorporate, the more attention Europe would pay to his advances, even if there seemed to be a general reluctance across the continent to act against him. As the new territories were forced to swear oaths of allegiance to the King of France, oaths which often supplanted the old oaths they had made to the Holy Roman Emperor, Louis could claim that he stood on legitimate and legal ground in his policy course. His neighbours, of course, saw things differently. Luxembourg dated its origins to the House of Luxembourg, which had once provided several Holy Roman emperors and even competed with the Habsburgs on the continent for dominance before the extinction of its male line. When this occurred, intermarriage in the process of merging the House of Burgundy's possessions with those of the Habsburgs meant that Philip II came to own a vast swathe of territory in the Low Countries by the time of his accession as King of Spain in 1555. Of course, the seven Dutch provinces within these possessions would soon rebel against Philip's authority, but the ten remaining provinces of the Spanish Netherlands, which included Luxembourg, remained loyal. So it was that by 1681, Spain owned Luxembourg and its extensive surrounding territories, just as surely as it owned the rest of the Spanish Netherlands. It was an accepted fact of European relations that Spain owned these lands even though the concept seems so strange to us now and even though by 1680 they were proving to be a weakness for Madrid rather than a strength. When Louis considered the strategic implications of Luxembourg and its surrounding lands, he couldn't help but imagine the benefits of having a French flag or at least a French influence in that sphere. Such a change in regime would seriously impair the southern border of the Spanish Netherlands while it would also reinforce the French border along the east and with it the Rhine. The question is, as with all the other reunions, how was he going to bring such a regime change about when this status quo in Luxembourg had existed for nearly 150 years? This is where our story of Lorraine becomes important again. Because Lorraine was about a day's ride from Luxembourg proper, the chamber deputies in Metz, where French operations in Lorraine were based, set themselves to work. Incredibly, they found that the County of Cheny, which overlapped the lands of Luxembourg, had once belonged to Metz. Following on from this shocking discovery and the subsequent absorption of the County of Cheny, they then found that the County of Cheny itself used to possess more territories further afield and that, although these territories were currently in the position of Luxembourg, they would now belong to the County of Cheny and thus to Lorraine and thus to France. Yeah. So, the implications were as obvious as they were brazen. Louis was not trying to seize Luxembourg in a military style coup because that would be too risky. Instead, he set his officials the task of gradually isolating and starving out the Duchy of Luxembourg so that the once great fortress city would be surrounded on all sides by French soldiers and lands. As though throwing aside all niceties, French troops then straight up blockaded Luxembourg and seemed content to starve it into submission. These acts would have been seen in Spain as something akin to an act of war, but Louis did not seem to dwell on Luxembourg long enough for the policy to really inflame Spanish opinion. That's because he had moved on to bigger and more daring things down south. With Alsace in French hands and several Rhine territories falling under the French sway thereafter, Strasbourg seemed to shimmer like a terribly isolated diamond in Louis's eyes. For so long, France had been tormented by the regular sight of imperial soldiers pouring across that fortress bridge and into the French-occupied portion of Alsace. This history of invasion and the very imperial leanings of the city fathers in Strasbourg, which was meant to be a free imperial city as per the terms of the Peace of Westphalia, singled out Strasbourg as a definite target even before the policy of the reunions had definitively begun. By singling Strasbourg out, Louis proved that he was as content to ignore the provisions of that 1648 set of treaties as he was to manipulate them. Having moved through questionably legal territory at best in his previous acquisitions, Louis proved content to resort to his favourite tactic, that of overwhelming force, when affairs reached a certain pitch. So it was that after building up a large stockpile of stores under Louvois's careful eye, French troops sallied forth on the 30th of September 1681, surprising the city fathers of Strasbourg with a series of startling ultimatums. Having seen the surrounding lands fall without so much as a shot being fired, and with the additional bridgehead of Kell on the right bank of the Rhine also seized, Strasbourg capitulated to France on the condition that the city would retain its old rights and privileges as per the terms of 1648. After having accepted the French as their overlords, Louis promptly ignored these very terms and demanded that the Protestant Church in Strasbourg be replaced with that of a Catholic one, in which he heard Mass on the 23rd of October, 1681. The very hostile act Louis had just committed was compounded by another still more brazen act on the very same day. On the 30th of September 1681, as French soldiers sallied forth into Strasbourg, the final details of a startling treaty were being worked out between the Duke of Mantua and French officials. With the agreed-for initial payment of 1 million livres and a subsequent annual payment of 60,000 livres a year, Louis managed to effectively bribe the Duke to hand over the Italian fortress of Cassal. The motivation behind taking casal a fortress 40 miles east of Turin, on the bank of the Po River, and on the Italian side of the Alps, was twofold. First, it would ensure French security for future campaigns in Italy in the event of another war between the French and Habsburgs there, and second, the fortress could be used to intimidate the Duke of Savoy and his subjects through the careful application of pressure with French troops. As we'll see in future extra episodes in Louis's religious policies in the region of Savoy, the use of French forces to acquire the religious uniformity that Louis desired became a common strategy after the Edict of Fontainebleau outlawed Protestantism in France in 1685. More immediately though, John A. Lynn noted that the double coup of Strasbourg and Casale stunned European opinion. Before we get too involved with Louis's further expansionist policies though, I thought it might be nice to insert a little break here and take some time to examine a certain individual's correspondence to lighten the mood, somewhat. In our previous Franco-Dutch War, we met the second wife of Monsieur. Her name was Elizabeth Charlotte. She was the Princess Palatine and the sister-in-law of Louis XIV. Coming from the Palatinate, which endured a series of horrific French campaigns over the course of the latter 17th century, Elizabeth Charlotte, or Liselotte to her friends, was well placed to comment on French policy during this era, yet it was her immense amount of correspondence that she sent between her German relatives that provide a unique and invaluable window into the life of a French royal during Louis's age. Liselotte was both intensely caring and refreshingly humorous considering the stiff and reserved court in which she resided. Compelled to convert to Catholicism as per the arranged marriage with the brother of the King of France, Liselotte wrote reams of letters commenting on how boring, how pompous and how lonely French court life could be. They stand as some of the best sources available on the era and are doubly valuable because, unusually for us, they're from the perspective of a woman. On the 13th of April, 1681, Lyselot wrote to her aunt, Duchess Sophie of Hanover, who would in time give Britain its Hanoverian line of monarchs through her firstborn son, George I. These incredibly interconnected tales are all the more fascinating because we get to see the actors talk to one another from an early stage, Lizalot, for her part, was forever commenting on how she would have loved to take a trip to Hanover, where Sophie was of course residing, but knew full well that her controlling husband, Philippe, would never allow such a journey. Thanks to her voluminous correspondence, Liselotte was kept well informed of the latest amusing tales and rumours from the courts of Europe, one of which, I felt, just had to be shared, guys, if for no other reason than it is hilarious, but also because it connects us to the people that lived in the 1680s and reminds us that they laughed at what we laughed at and found solace in comedy during the long and dreary times. Lizalot wrote, I know some fine stories, one of which I simply must tell you, Grace. I heard it three or four days ago and it happened in a Jesuit college. One of the pupils at the college was full of mischief of all kinds, ran around all night long and did not sleep in his room. So the revered fathers threatened him with a tremendous beating if he did not stay in his room at night. So the boy went to a painter and asked the painter to paint two saints on his buttocks. On the right cheek, Saint Ignatius of Loyola, and on the left, Saint Francois Xavier, which the painter did. With that, the boy tidily pulls up his breeches, goes back to college and starts making all kinds of trouble. When the revered fathers catch him at it, they tell him, This time you'll be whipped. The boy begins to struggle and plead, but they say that pleading will not do him any good, so the boy gets down on his knees and says, Oh Saint Ignatius, oh Saint Xavier, have pity upon me and perform a miracle for me to prove my innocence. With that, the fathers pull down his breeches, and as they lift up his shirt to beat him, the boy calls out, I am praying with such fervor that I am certain my invocation will be heard. When the fathers see the two painted saints, they exclaim, A miracle! A boy whom we thought as a rogue is a saint! And with that, they immediately fell on their knees to kiss his behind, and call together all the pupils, and make them come in in procession to kiss the holy behind, which all of them do. <laughs> Whatever the truth of the story, guys, it sheds remarkably humorous light on the era in general, considering how serious Louis seemed to be all the time. But this wasn't all there's talked about. She she proved to be strikingly critical of the general style of French court life. And she never truly got used to the stuffy rituals or entrenched hypocrisy which Louis's varied yes-men displayed. Considering how bafflingly the whole concept of Louis' court can seem to us, It really is refreshing to have someone like Lizalot on the inside, so to speak, who viewed the court with the same detached disgust that we might do. When she wasn't criticising it, she was explaining to her relatives how it wasn't worth her time to get involved in its petty quarrels or struggles for power. Writing again to her aunt Sophie on the 19th of February, 1682, Lizalot said... I just go along as best as I can, thinking that if I do not seek to harm others I should be left in peace too. But then when I see that I am being set upon from all sides I become very cross as I am quite impatient to begin with. All these vexations make me lose what little patience I have left. And then I have to sort everything out in my own head in order to break out of this labyrinth and there is no advice or help anywhere because everyone here is so calculating and false that one cannot trust anyone. These are the causes of my recent illness, but as for describing how they came about and what has upset me so much, that cannot be entrusted to paper, for I am quite certain that my letters are being read and opened. I must also confess one thing to your grace. All that glitters is not gold, and for all their boasting about the famous French liberty, all diversions here are unbelievably stiff and constrained. And besides, I have become accustomed to So many dreadful things since my arrival in this country that if I could ever return to a place where falseness did not rule everywhere, and where lies are neither the daily fare nor the approval of, I should think that I'd come to
0: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states.
1: a paradise. Although Lizzalot was able to note that the court was moving to Strasbourg, a strategy employed by Louis to reinforce his authority in the newly annexed Dominions, we do not hear from her much about the actual pace of the Reunion's policy or of the foreign reactions which certainly accompanied them. Lizzalot's letters aren't necessarily there for that. They're more there instead to shed a revealing light on the excesses and leisurely pace of the court, where games could be played for hours on end amongst the courtiers and where there was nothing much else to do but play several games of cards. Louis, for his part, maintained an avid interest in the preserves of the wealthy and royal, but he was certainly more interested in the practical realities unfolding outside of the bloated galleries and salons. As the winter of 1681 approached, it was becoming clear that the Spanish were beginning to tire of the French policies. For one, the Spanish garrison inside Luxembourg took to plundering their previously owned lands, which now belonged to the French in Louis' mind, in order for the Spanish to avoid starvation. Spanish troops burst through the blockade and ensured that a badly needed wagon train of weapons reached the Great Bastion in Luxembourg, a miniature victory which directly ruined Louis's long-term plans to starve the settlement into submission. With little regard for the consequences, Louis retaliated in early 1682 by ravaging the nearby lands of Coutre within the Spanish Netherlands, even while the Franco-Spanish negotiators continued to deliberate the terms of the Treaty of Nijmegen a few miles away. The message was even sent louder still when the debate over the French ownership of the two towns in particular came up for discussion with these Franco-Spanish delegates. As per Nijmegen, France was meant to receive either Charlemagne or Dinant. In this case, as Lynn puts it, this was a Gordian knot he cut by simply occupying both. And when it seemed certain the Spanish would hold on in Luxembourg, Louis authorized his commanders there to begin bombarding it with mortar shells. It seemed as though nothing would stop Louis getting what he wanted, and that while acting he expected to not counter much resistance either. Above all, he seemed content to prod European opinion with a stick, because one of the major opponents of his policy, the Holy Roman Emperor Leopold, was fundamentally occupied with matters in the East. Appreciating that Leopold was busy with the Ottomans, and that he would be thus more willing to make a quick peace, Louis seemed eager to push the envelope while he had the chance. The act of bombarding Luxembourg with mortars was the peak of this opportunistic policy, while Louis had also managed to secure limited approval from imperial delegates over the future of Lorraine. However, at some point in the course of this bullying foreign policy, Louis seemed to have realised that this opportunism in the face of the Ottoman threat from the east did not really gel very well with his self-styled monarch of the most Christian king. Noting that attacking a fellow Christian power as it struggled against the forces of Islam was perhaps in politique, Louis made the decision to withdraw his forces from outside of Luxembourg in March 1682, and proposed that he and the Spanish submit their disputes resulting from the French policy of their reunions to Charles II across the Channel. Whether Louis expected a favourable ruling or not isn't quite the point. Lynn in particular notes that Louis was likely thinking of the bigger game by this stage. Specifically, Louis's ministers anticipated that Leopold would collapse in the face of the Ottomans, whom Louis believed were the stronger party in the unfolding struggle. With the Habsburgs defeated in the East, Louis then desired to have himself or his progeny elected Holy Roman Emperor, and from such a point he could dominate European affairs and ensure the total supremacy of Bourbon, France. For this to be successful, though, the German voters would have to like him, and they were far less likely to have a fond view of Louis so long as he continued to lob shells into Luxembourg. In short then, though he did fear the hit to his reputation, this is because he was seeking to mould this reputation into currency within Germany. Not for the first or last time, Louis was seeking to influence Holy Roman affairs. The net impact of the Ottoman thrust towards Vienna was that it threw a wrench into the work of Louis' plans for the eastern border of France, and that it essentially forced him to delay his operations for about 18 months. Cynical as ever, when it became clear that Allied forces were in fact triumphing over that of the Ottomans, and when Jan Sobieski arrived with bells on to lead a crashing charge into the Ottoman ranks, Louis could short this period of Christian consideration, and began chiding the Spanish for their lack of cooperation with Charles II. On the 31st of August 1683, Louis' ambassador in the Spanish Netherlands declared to the governor, the Marquis of Grana, that since Spain had been so obdurate, France would send 35,000 troops over the border into Flanders to subsist at the expense of Spain through the exertion of military pressure that drew nearly 3 million livres from the effective citizens. In addition to this, the new around Luxembourg was again tightened, and Louis' apparent lapse in determination was decidedly over. In the face of these definite escalations, the Marquis of Grana appealed to the Dutch who sent 8,000 men across their borders with the promise of more. When the governor had had enough, he sent some men of his own across the border to take some contributions for themselves. This to Louis was akin to national outrage, because other people couldn't do it even if he could, and he upped the ante by aggressively burning some towns down on the Spanish side, a tactic which the Spanish then emulated, before the Council of State in Spain made the decision to formalise these measures. On the 26th of October, 1683, perhaps anticipating additional diplomatic and military support from the Dutch and Holy Roman Emperor, Spain declared war on France. Incredibly, the peace from the previous war hadn't even lasted four years, and yet here opened the latest chapter of European conflict again. Unfortunately for the Spanish, though, this war was to be quite unlike the others. Overwhelmed by the requirements of the Ottoman campaign, even with the Siege of Vienna turned back, Leopold could offer no aid to his Spanish cousins, leaving them pretty much on their own. What this meant for Louis was that he had Spain right where he wanted it. The meagre support that the Dutch could provide was not adequate to turn the tables from their position, and Louis's marshals were ordered into the familiar pressure points, armed to the teeth with all the tools and a suspicious level of preparation work already done. Before the true extent of the war was realised, Louis then tried his hand at some diplomacy. Negotiating with the Dutch, whose ambassador hadn't left Paris through protest at that point, Louis presented a series of demands and argued that the Dutch could arbitrate between Spain and France with these demands. Reasoning yet again that he was only seeking what was France's right by previous treaties and the tradition of history, Louis looked to begin the so-called War of the Reunions with a diplomatic coup. By threatening Spain with oblivion in its isolated state, Louis planned on making a series of demands against it, as he had against the previously annexed territories. Signalling his preference for the reunions policy, Louis proclaimed his willingness to give up all claims on Ghent and a number of other Spanish-Netherlands fortress towns, as Spain would choose from one of the following five options, each of which focused on a different border region. Failing Spanish cooperation with this policy, not unlike that of a game show, Louis planned to simply take what was not given to him through peaceful means. The options he presented to Spain were as follows Number one, give up Luxembourg and its dependencies to his realm, or number two, give a series of fortress towns in the southern part of Flanders, including Demude, Courtrai, and Beaumont, or number three, surrender a series of fortress towns in Catalonia, or number four, surrender a different set of fortified ports in Catalonia, or number five. Surrender, a series of fortress towns attached to the Navarre region in southwest France. Not a single one of these options, as Louis well predicted, appealed to the Spanish. Cynically then, as if expecting the refusal, French troops marched even while French officials distracted and occupied the attentions of the Dutch. Although a deadline for the 31st of December 1683 was supposed to be in place, French troops occupied several towns listed in the demands to Spain, as if to strengthen the French position yet further. Although Louis did enjoy great successes both along the border in Flanders and Hainaut and along the Pyrenees, the real story was the conduct of the French troops stationed there. Such horrifying practices of burning and pillage harkened back to darker days of European warfare, and they continued with an increasing bitterness not seen on such a scale since the Thirty Years' War and certainly not in the Spanish Netherlands region. Historians think that Louis was a little bit peeved at the Spanish for resisting after so many other annexations had been brought about successfully, or perhaps he wanted to hurry the campaigns along out of fear of Leopold, turning his attention back west. Either way, Louis conducted himself and his French troops horribly, and egged on by Louvois, the two men acted with regrettable brutality in Lynn's words, though it's quite unlikely that either of them really regretted it all that much all in the name of expanding upon the already secure French border. Neither side could be excused, of course, but then Spain hadn't blundered its way into another war in less than five years. The facts seem pretty damning. Louis, used to getting what he wanted and addicted to violent solutions to his state policies, had all but forgotten how to tread carefully in the realm of European diplomacy. So it was that, out of sheer arrogance and ignorance, rather than from a genuine design to take over the continent... French troops marched under Louis' banner and made a name for France as the Burner, the Looter, the Raper, and the Aggressor. Such a view of France was building steam in the halls of European diplomacy as well as on the battlefield. Louis proved strikingly resilient in his repeated claims for satisfaction. Because of this, France was diplomatically isolated by the spring of 1684, but to Louis it didn't matter so much as long as his forces continued to have such successes, and successes they did indeed enjoy. Not since the opening phase of the Dutch War had French force so carried all before them, and Louis was even able to command an army in person in April 1684, when he led 40,000 men around the fortress of Condé and Valenciennes, the primary goal being not the invasion of the Spanish Netherlands, but the cracking of the so far impregnable nut Luxembourg. In spite of the surrounding forces, and the regular mortar bombardments over the previous year, the Spanish had not agreed to Louis's so-called ultimatum by the end of the previous December, so Louis insisted on the logical conclusion to the choking of that once great duchy. Over the night of the 8th to the 9th of May 1684, trenches were opened, and the Spanish garrison of 2,500 men were compelled to resist. Long story short, the Spanish resisted bravely considering the disparity in numbers, But by the 3rd of June, 1684, Luxembourg was in French hands. With this success, Louis travelled to his new palace at Versailles to celebrate, and immediately declared himself satisfied with his gains. If Spain would agree to roll back the clock to August 1683 and just allow Louis to have Luxembourg, then Louis would agree to a long truce making the recent gains secure. Note that Louis didn't actually expect a total peace treaty formulated by an international treaty, and this wasn't so much because Louis didn't want a lasting peace with the Habsburgs; it was more so because he didn't expect the Habsburgs to give it to him, and he was right. That said, asking merely for a truce was attractive to the Dutch, who reasoned that the wrongs could be righted at a future date, when unified European affairs were more in order. William of Orange was already scheming to develop a coalition against the French, basing his arguments on the manifest aggression and greed of the Sun King, who refused to relinquish Strasbourg as per the truce either. By the end of June, the Dutch told the Spanish that if Madrid would not agree to the terms for a truce with Louis, then they would just withdraw their troops, which of course further weakened the Spanish military position in the region. With the writing on the wall then, the Spanish prepared to agree to the most humiliating terms in recent memory, as Louis continued to ride high. The truce of Ratisbon, signed on the 14th of August 1684, was arguably the high point of Louis's expansionist aims, if not his reign, and he could present it to his subjects as further evidence of his great and glorious success as king. Through this agreement, which also included a commitment from the Emperor to agree to peace with France for 20 years, Louis guaranteed the security of his recently gotten gains and the integrity of his borders. No longer could Imperials cross over Strasbourg and no more could French security be undermined by the curious history of Spanish inheritance in Luxembourg. With his military prestige at an all-time high, Louis again moved further into dangerous territory through his alienation of Europe. By the autumn of 1684, even while he could claim to be triumphant, there was scarcely a power in Europe whom he could rely on as a friend. As if to drive in the knife, French forces had even made a point of occupying the Principality of Orange along the River Rhone in 1680, a small territory which was the ancestral homeland of William of Orange's family. The implications were clear, and now William began to prepare the way for one of the most devastating checks on the Sun King's power and ego. The final judgment on Louis's policy of reunions must be said, on paper at least, to have been an overwhelming success. I mean, Louis did accomplish all that he set out to achieve at the end of the Dutch War, and in many ways this period of four years was more militarily successful than any other stage in his reign. Yet the unfortunate caveat which always accompanied Louis' gains was the asterisk of European opinion. Although his military prestige had reached unimaginable heights, his reputation among European princes, and among German princes in particular, had slumped to an all-time low. That said, while they were conducted with a heavy hand and a latent arrogance, at their core the policy of the reunions were defensive in measure, and they were the result of Louis's struggle with French security that he had inherited from his grandfather Henry IV, who had viewed the state of affairs with alarm as he considered the numerous open doors to foreign invasion that the French borders provided. That Louis had largely plugged these holes by 1684 was to be applauded, and certainly Louis' seizures added a greater layer of security to the traditionally more vulnerable regions of France. If Luxembourg, for example, had remained in Spanish hands, then the opportunities for raiding or jeopardising the new French regime in nearby Lorraine would have been desperately acute. By dealing with these problems as individual strategic threats, Louis eliminated some major sticking points that Vauban in particular had had with the French strategic position. Yet for all that, Louis virtually guaranteed that a league demanding retribution would be launched against him in the near future. Perhaps, in a sense, he even expected this, after all he only asked for a truce and not a permanent peace with Spain. Yet... In a sense, this did not matter to Louis because with the borders so reinforced and the fortifications now expanding, the French state expenditure was content to denote that 2.3 million livres had been spent on improving the French defensive belt across the north and northeast of the country. As if anticipating that he would soon have to defend his recently gotten gains, Louis seemed perfectly willing to invest in these gargantuan building projects. If his neighbours wished to take them back, They were now welcome to try. Try they would in the not-too-distant future, but before we look at that, we need to swing our focus determinately towards the east. Although we glossed over it in this episode, the Siege of Vienna by the Turks in September 1683 was arguably the watershed moment in the history of the Habsburg and Ottoman fortunes, if not early modern Europe itself. So it's only right that we do it justice here by putting it in the military, diplomatic and cultural context. That it deserves if that sounds good to you then i hope to see you next time as we switch gears to begin our story of the last siege of vienna i for one i'm seriously excited so thanks for listening to this latest installment of the long war my name is zach and i will see you all soon